I'm taking a break. So typically we teach through the scripture. So I'm going through the book of Exodus right now. But we took a break a couple of weeks ago as we led up to our 40th anniversary. And I'm going to spend the next uh, two or three weeks, probably the next several weeks, continuing to talk about Christ's fellowship as we move forward. And one thing I said in the very beginning of this series of talks was that the ultimate reason and the ultimate end of all we do, of who we are, of our very existence, the ultimate end of all of this is for the glory of God. That has to be understood in everything we do and in who we are. You exist, we all and every single person exists for the glory of God. Today in our Sunday school, it was kind of interesting. And you learn all kinds of things when you come to Sunday school. And we're learning, we're doing a series on church history. <clears throat> and we learned today that it was, it was through events that happened in the church and in church history that gave us a document called the Magna Carta. Anybody know what the Magna Carta is? It's okay if you don't. Most people don't care for history, and we hear these names and things, and we don't really pay attention to them. But the Magna Carta was signed in 1215 by a king of England named John. If you ever, everybody seen Robin Hood? Oogalali, oogalali, oogalali. Remember that cartoon? That's right. But King John was even in the cartoon. Old, old King John, and he was a bad king. But King John and his tyranny and his injustice and his wickedness, he was so bad that basically he was forced to sign this document because everybody turned against him. And the only way that he could regain favor with all the people that he needed was to sign this document called the Magna Carta. And from this document, this is why we go to trial by jury, a jury of our peers. It's why we're not just thrown into prison without cause and kept there until we rot and die. Our very constitution, our very nation as we are today, actually came out of something that happened in 1215, we can't even think back that far. We don't even know these things, but we're a product of them. And this is, this is the reality of what God has done all through history. He's done all things for his glory. He took a wicked king, and out of the wickedness of that king, he brought something great and good that we are all still reaping the benefits of today and we didn't even know when it happened and that it happened for the most part. This is the promise that God gives us in Romans 8.28. He works all things together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose you exist. Every single person exists for the glory of God. Judas 
the son of perdition, the devil, the betrayer of Jesus existed for the glory of God. Peter, the fisherman who went on to lead the church and preach that sermon on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 souls were saved, he existed for the glory of God. It's not just the good that exists for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. Darkness exists for the glory of God. Light exists for the glory of God. Wickedness exists for the glory of God. Good and righteousness exists for the glory of God. This is the world God has made. This is the beauty of the scripture. God doesn't hide the bad things from us. He puts it right there. He records it for us and he wants us to see it. How relevant would this scripture be if God only recorded the very good things that ever happened in human history? It wouldn't be relevant at all. Because your life is not just filled with good things. It's filled with more good things than you see and more good things than you know, but it's also filled with hard things. The light you appreciate, the light we see, we see it, we appreciate it because it's contrasted with darkness, real darkness. The sun that shines on you, you appreciate it. The warmth it brings to you, you appreciate it. Because darkness really exists. Cold really exists. So this is God's world. He is working all things together for good. And all things and all people exist for his glory. Christ in all of life for all the world. That's our motto to remind us why we are here and who we serve. Today I want to talk to you specifically about leadership. Leadership is so important because leadership is ordained by God. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Titus is a little book of the Bible toward the back of your Bible. It's only three chapters long. But it's a very powerful little book. The Apostle Paul wrote it to his spiritual disciple, Titus. And Titus was on the island of Crete. And Paul left Titus there to set in order the church. Very simply, in verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Romans 12.8 lists leadership as a gift that God gives to the body of Christ. And God exhorts leaders who lead to lead with diligence. Ephesians 4.11 Paul writes, Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. In 1 Timothy 3, 
along with Titus 1, Paul lists the qualifications for elders and for deacons. In 1 Timothy 5.17 and in Hebrews 13.17, the Scripture gives instruction on how elders and leaders are to be obeyed and remembered and treated with honor in the body of Christ. When we talk about leadership, the kind of leadership that we're talking about is gospel-centered, Christ-centered leadership. To increase our leadership internally and externally will require a commitment to raise up leaders within the church that are leaders in our homes and in our communities. This is important, and if you don't believe it's important, Watch the news, read the newspapers, look around our culture and see the void of godly leadership. There's lots of people leading out there, but they're not all leading in the right way. They're not all leading people down the right path. Leadership, according to West Point, is very simply this. It is the ability to influence people. It's the ability to influence people's behavior toward a particular goal, specifically the goals of a said organization, or in West Point's case, it's the Army. And the army is all about raising up leaders. The Bible says that we are part of the army of God. Paul writes to his son Timothy in the faith, his son in the faith Timothy, and he says, Timothy, endure hardship like a good soldier. The Bible likens our walk of faith to a race. And it says, Run in such a manner that you would win the race. In other words, run to win the race. But it's not just one individual person that's going to win a race. We're not in a competition with one another. The picture is the body of Christ, the many-membered body of Christ, one body, one head, many members, it is that body that is to run the race to win. We are all called to run the race to win. We are all part of the army of God. We are called to endure hardship like a good soldier. So there is a necessity to raise up leaders within the church because it should be the leaders that are raised up in the church that ultimately impact our community and our world. So I take you back to that little document I referenced at the beginning of my talk, the Magna Carta. Do you know how that came about? It came about because of the gospel. It came about because of the church. It came about because of the understanding of justice and grace and mercy and liberty. 
It doesn't take a student of history to look at a world map and see that there is not an accident that has happened, that the countries of the world on the, on the globe that are countries that embrace freedom and free societies and free speech, those are the countries that historically embraced the gospel and Christianity. Now we can lose that. We can lose that sense of what God has blessed us with and the reality of what God has blessed us with, but there is no denying that we are who we are today as a nation, as a people, a free society because of this gospel of Jesus Christ. In history, throughout history, that is borne out by the hard, cold facts of world history. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, because we are here today because the world hasn't stopped. When God set the world in motion and set it turning, it has not stopped turning yet. When he created Adam in the garden and then created Eve from the side of Adam and put them together in the garden, told them to be fruitful and multiply, they did just that. And we are all a product of that fruitfulness and that multiplication. And that has continued and the world continues to turn and his story continues to be written and continues to be told and we are products of that today. Because there have been leaders who have risen up and led the church and led our culture. We are here today. There will be leaders after us, after we're gone. The question is, who will those leaders be? Now, I have no power over what happens in Washington, much less Austin, except that I exercise my right to vote and I can write my congressman and I can make my voice heard, but ultimately I can't make anybody do anything. It's not my job to do that anyways, and it's not your job to do that anyway. We have a system set in place that God's ordained that of laws and governance and that's supposed to make everything work the right way sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't right but we're here today a product of our past we are products of history who will rise up and be the leaders for tomorrow who will lead the church tomorrow who are the leaders that brought Christ to you Who were the men and the women that led the church that enabled you to hear the gospel? I'm going to venture to say you don't know most of them. You might be able to name some or a few, but you really don't know who they are. But they were there. How do we know they were there? Because we're here today. Someone preserved the scripture. Listen, if the scripture could have been destroyed and torn down and proven wrong, it would have been destroyed and torn down and proven wrong thousands of years ago. Don't think that 
that skepticism and criticism of the scripture has just begun in the last two or three hundred years. This book has stood the test of time. The church, Christ fellowship included, has stood the test of time. And I'm not talking about a 40-year anniversary. I'm talking about Jesus Christ who said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. I will build my church. This is what he told his disciples. This is what was told to them and told for us. We are here today because Jesus made a promise that he would build his church. He said that to Peter and the disciples before his crucifixion, not long before his crucifixion. And Jesus showed up some 2,000 years after a lot of other things had happened. Jesus showed up actually 4,000 years after a lot of other things had happened. We're not talking something that happened 2,000 years ago. We're talking about what God set in motion when he created. And God ordained leadership. Commitment to the gospel and a commitment to the Great Commission is what we talked about last week. That there must be a commitment to the gospel and a commitment to the Great Commission. But that's not going to happen without committed leaders. Now, I'm not saying that all of you need to become pastors. Please understand. A pastor is simply, pastor is my title. It's my vocation. Some of you may be plumbers. Some of you may be electricians. Some of you are law enforcement officers. Some of you are housewives. Listen, your vocation can be all kinds of things, including pastor. When I talk about leadership, I'm not just talking about some title or some position or some particular vocation you have, because leadership cuts across all of that. Leadership is diversified. God qualifies leaders. We don't all lead the same way, and we don't all lead with the same capacity, but we all lead in some way. We seek transformation in our culture, transformation in our homes, in our families, in our community, in the church. It is God that brings that transformation, but he does not do it without leadership. Leadership is the process of influencing behavior. Jesus lived the life of the ultimate servant leader. Jesus was no doubt the greatest leader and the greatest servant to walk the earth. And Christ is to be our ultimate model when it comes to leadership. Gospel-centered leadership is leadership that begins with submission Jesus was submitted to the will of his Father. Jesus said, I don't do anything I don't see my Father do. I don't say anything I don't hear my Father say. I've come not to do my will, he declared, but I came to do the will of my Father. 
And as disciples of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be submitted to God through the power and the control of the Holy Spirit. And we know that we are living submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit when we are living submitted to the will of God as revealed to us in the Word of God. Very often people will come to me and say, Pastor Jeff, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do. And my first question to them is, have you read the Scripture? Well, I have a hard time understanding the Scripture. I'm just waiting for Him to tell me. Well, you're going to be waiting a long time. Now, I'm not saying God can't and does not speak to people. Small, inward voice. That's biblical. But if you think the only voice out there is the voice of God, let me just clue you in. There are lots of voices out there. If you think the only spirit out there is the Holy Spirit, let me help you understand. The Bible says, test the spirits, plural. Test the spirits and see if they be of God. So when you hear that voice telling you to do something and it feels really right and it's going to be really good, how do you know it's God? Because the Bible says your heart is is wicked and deceptive above all things. Well, I just felt like it was so right. Guess what? Your feelings deceived you. Well, I I prayed about it, and I just felt a peace in my spirit that I could do this. Yeah, but the Bible says that's sin. How can you feel, how can God tell you, yes, it's okay to do this, when his word says, no, it's not okay? Well, but it felt so so right. But did you read God's word? Well, I don't don't get into the Bible. Do you know why I'm saying this? Because these are all things I've had people say to me. How do you know you're in the will of God? Get in the word of God. God will never violate his word. Now, God's not going to tell you what color car to go buy at the car lot next week, okay? If you're trying to figure out whether to buy a red car or a blue car, you're not going to find scripture and verse on that. But you might find scripture and verse that's going to tell you whether you should be buying a car right now or not. I'm tired of my old ride. You know, they got this deal. For 10 years, I can finance this. I really can't afford it. But you know, the car salesman got my payments down to right where I I can afford it. What's wrong with your car? Well, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just tired of driving it. I want something new. Now, you might find some scripture and verse that would help you understand that you shouldn't just go into debt unnecessarily. Now, if you need a car, you need to get one might help you get to work and earn a paycheck and pay your bill. I get that. To know you're in the will of God, you need to know the word of God. To live and to lead effectively, we must understand God's will. And we're not going to understand that apart from his word. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Paul writes this, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. In other words, walk wisely. Walk 
carefully, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see that word psalms there? That's not just top 40 songs on the radio. The psalms there refer to the songs in the song book we find right in the middle of our Bible called the book of psalms. Now, how are you going to sing psalms to somebody if you never read them? Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Gospel-centered leadership is leadership that begins with submission. Submission to who? Submission to God. And then the Bible says, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. We are all submitted under God. So we come to understand that the will of God as we, we come to understand the will of God as we come to understand the word of God. As you read, as you pray, as you study the scripture, the Holy Spirit within you will illuminate God's word in your heart. He'll open the eyes of your understanding and you'll find that your mind is beginning to be renewed. This is how you're going to walk wisely. This is how leadership becomes godly and Christ-centered and gospel-centered. Every believer is called to lead though not in the same capacity. Every believer is called to lead because every believer is called to the work of ministry. Every believer is called to lead others in the way of Christ. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He gave some, not all, But he gave some to be those things to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Every believer is called to lead a gospel-centered life. We're not all called to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, or pastors and teachers, but every believer is called to the work of ministry. That is the work of leading a gospel-centered life obedient to Christ, obedient to the great commission that commands us to go and to make disciples. It's not just pastors that are called to make disciples. Every believer, including pastors, are called to make disciples. Vocation or gifting does not determine leadership. Whatever your vocation, if God calls you out of darkness and into Christ, he's called you to the work of ministry. God calls some in the church to be equipping the saints for the work of ministry, but he calls all of the church to rise up and to do the work of ministry. The difference that we will make in the world as the church doesn't end here. It just begins here. It really takes effect out there. Leadership from the pulpit 
Equipping the saints for the work of ministry is vitally important in the church, but if the only leadership in the church is that which comes from the pulpit, then the church will not fulfill the mission that Christ has given her. Leadership behind the pulpit must translate into leadership before the pulpit and outside the walls of this church building. Leadership inside the church must translate to leadership outside the church. And this is why Christ gave leadership in the form of pastors and teachers so that those leaders could equip others to lead in areas outside as well as inside the church. So leaders are called to raise up other leaders. And this is what the book of Titus deals with. It's the practice and development of leadership within the church. Paul tells Titus, this is the reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And the scripture teaches that leadership is a gift to the church to equip us for for all of life. See, what, what we do when we read the scripture, study the scripture, pray the scripture, we're not just learning about things pertaining to the church. That's what our culture wants to do. Our culture wants to segment and segregate everything. Listen, segregation didn't just start with racists in the South or racists in any part of our nation. We're guilty of segregation all the time and in all sorts of ways. So we say, well, listen, your religion needs to be segregated to the church house on Sunday. Don't bring it to the workhouse on Monday. Really? Your religion is to be segregated to the church house, but don't bring it to the state house. The very reason we have a state house is because of the gospel. The very reason you can write your congressman and cast your vote is because of the gospel. Because of the freedom that God brought. Are you going to tell me Is our culture going to tell us that we've got to segregate this gospel, this good news, and it can't permeate everything else? It has permeated everything else. It's why we're free today. We just don't know it. And the reason we don't know it is because we don't read this book anymore. The reason we don't know it is because we don't care about history because we think history is irrelevant and meaningless and does not apply at all to my life. Yet we are living products of our history and we better be thankful for our history because it's why we're free today but if we don't learn from our history and if we don't guard our history and guard the truths that this book gives to us we may not be free tomorrow we may find ourselves under the rule of a king john again oppressing his people simply because he has the power to do it. And there's no one to tell him different. It was the church that put pressure on King John and made King John submit against his will. And he did it because he loved his power and he saw himself losing power. That's a perfect example of how God works all things together for good. (laughs) 
The scripture teaches that leadership is a gift. It's a gift for all of life. And this is why leadership is ordained by God in his church. And it's to be qualified and centered in Christ and in his gospel. Leaders lead from the pulpit, but they also lead from the pew. That's you. We lead from the communion table out the front doors, into our homes, into our community, and back into the church. Leadership doesn't begin or end at a certain point, but it encompasses all of life. One of the areas of our culture most lacking in leadership is in the family. And the Bible addresses leadership in the family as essential for leadership in the church. God ordains qualified leaders, and the qualifications for leadership in the church, specifically for elders and deacons, is directly tied to the leadership practiced in the home. This is true because you cannot separate leadership within the church from leadership within the home and the family. I'm sad to say that in some church cultures, yes, church cultures, it's not really relevant. What the pastor does outside the pulpit is not important and is not relevant as long as he's fulfilling his duty here. In other words, there are church cultures who don't care what kind of life I lead outside my church and out from behind my pulpit as long as I'm taking care of the business of the church. But that is not scriptural. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Because our Christianity doesn't just exist inside these four walls. Our Christianity must go outside of these four walls. It must permeate our culture. That means the life I live here and the life I live there needs to line up. Now, I'm going to confess to you right now, I am a miserable failure. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife and you can ask my children. I fail. I get angry. Sometimes, I know this is hard to believe, I get impatient. Sometimes, I take out my frustration on those closest to me when they've done absolutely nothing to deserve that. I'm just being honest with you. You know why I do that? Because I'm human. But here's what I know. When I do that, I know it's wrong. And I have to repent. Yes, the pastor has to repent. We all have to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. Listen, if the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you and you walk outside these doors and you do something against God's nature, God's character, and God's will, the Spirit of God on the inside of you is going to clue you in on that. You're going to know. And in that very moment... The Bible, the good news is that we can repent and there is grace and forgiveness for us. But we shouldn't want to continue in that, right? We can all fail, but we don't want to just keep walking in our failure. Leaders are not men and women who never fail. They're men and women who fail constantly. 
but they recognize their failure and they recognize the importance of aligning themselves with what they've been tasked to do. And we're talking about godly, Christ-centered, gospel-centered leaders. And that means that our leadership must be informed by this word and by this gospel. That means that we must come in line with the word of God, the will of God, and the gospel of Christ. So the Bible gives us the qualifications for leaders. It's first in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and then in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. It gives us the duty of the elders. Paul says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. No parent likes to have to discipline their kids, but because parents love their children, they will discipline their kids because it's necessary sometimes. God is no different. He is the best parent. He is the best father. Titus 2, that entire chapter instructs the church to teach and train up those within. It says, you older, teach those and instruct those that are younger in word and in deed through example. This is the work of ministry. This is building up the body of Christ in love. This is what Paul writes about in Ephesians when he says that Christ gave these gifts to the church for the work of ministry to build up the body. And it says in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. From whom the whole body, that's us, the whole body, joined and knit together, whether you realize it or not, the body of Christ is joined and knit together. You're all sitting separately. Some of you are sitting next to one another. Some of you have spaces. But listen, in Christ, in, in the Father, and in Christ, we have been joined together and made one. And Paul gives us this picture. This is why God made human bodies the way he did, because the human body, the very body you possess is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of how we are related to God in Christ. He is the head. We are the body. There are all these different members, fingers and toes and knees and elbows and everything else you can imagine. But they're all joined together. They're all one body and they're all supplying what the other needs so that the body as a whole can function as one and function effectively. We've come from the days of those letters written by Paul because God has ordained and raised up godly leaders. We've come from that day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ because God raised up godly leaders. We come from much farther back and we will continue much farther on until the coming of the Lord. First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. In other words... 
The word which he commanded for a thousand generations is the word which he commanded to the generations without time. As long as there are generations, remember. As long as there are generations, keep teaching. As long as there are generations, keep proclaiming. We are to remember, that means we are to obey and teach and instruct and lead for the generations. Christ Fellowship, we have to rise up. We have to be leaders for the generation. Please stand, and I'm going to give you your charge. And I'm going to pray for the food next door. Everyone is invited. I hope you all stay. What a wonderful opportunity to fellowship together. Here's my charge to you, church. I charge you to pray and to seek to be leaders in your own capacity. Lead within your families. Lead in your work. Lead in your community. And please lead in this church. Lead by doing the work of ministry. Lead a gospel-centered life of service modeled after Jesus. Obey his commandments and keep his commission to make disciples. I charge you to pray and seek God to raise up qualified leaders, to raise up elders and servants that will lead the generations to come. I charge you to pray that specifically for Christ Fellowship Church. Men, I charge you to pray and seek to see how God may use you to train younger men and to lead and serve the church and her families into the generations. Women, I charge you to pray and seek to see how God may use you to train younger women and to serve the church and her families into the generations. Christ Fellowship, I charge you to resist complacency. Do not assume someone else will lead. I charge you to seek him first, to seek first his kingdom and its righteousness. Do not seek a position, but be open to his calling. He will place you in the body where he wills, when he wills, and how he wills. I charge you to trust him and to obey Him for His glory.